I think I'm having an art attack. And away we go. So today on Art Attack, welcome, first of all. Thank you for being here, Lizzie, and for always coming to our incredible radio station. You travel so far. I do travel so far. That really actually do. is correct. You do, and we try to we try to record at least two episodes. Just a little insight for the viewers out there who wonder what's going on and how this is done. This is all done in my recording studio, which is AKA my real studio, my atelier, and Lizzie travels very far to come here, which is amazing, but as she should, because this is the greatest place to record. <laughs> and we have Manny, who is my executive assistant, but is also uh, the engineer of the show. He wears many hats, and he's also an incredible drummer, and he, he's a really good soccer player, and just an overall loving guy. Uh, and it's, you know, Valentine's Day today, so him and I are going to go uh, do a little date later. But uh. anyway... Filled with romance. Also, it is so worth the journey for me because every time I come, you show up in an equally magnificent artist coat, always oversized with a beautiful cup of coffee. Thank and you. nothing could be better to witness. Did in the you morning. notice my chalice that was crafted by it's a ceramic chalice that was crafted by my ex-wife's mother, who's one of the greatest ceramicists I've ever uh, come in contact with, and I got a lot of free stuff during the marriage. Of course, she would break it now, like Ai Weiwei, <laughs> if she knew that we're I was not drinking there yet. it. Yeah, but we're not there yet. Oh, so anyway, today we are going to be talking about something I know very little about, honestly. Uh, earth art, and it has been called land art. Can you wax poetically a little bit about what this genre is, and I know that it came to fruition right around the 60s, but I'm sure you know so much about it, it's going to be disgusting to our viewers how <laughs> smart you are. And by the way, little footnote right now, I always get everyone going, hey, Lizzie is so smart, it's crazy. She never repeats her words. She doesn't stutter. She doesn't, I mean, you have a at the end of when you're saying stuff. <laughs> oh, my God. I hate that circle back. Also, I looked up what it's called, and it's a vocal fry. Oh, a vocal fry. Yeah, yeah, of course, a vocal fry. Anyway. <laughs> you don't have that at all. But, <laughs> Thank you. But that's the irony, right, that your dad bullied you for that, which ironically perhaps crafted you and formed you into being the most articulate, able dialectician who has so much of a command of the English language with so much words, and you use words so elegantly and eloquently and, and correctly. It's amazing, and you, you don't like you don't do what most of us do, which is uh um uh, 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 uh which is I catch myself when I listen to the shows. I'm like, you know, um, you know, um, and you never do <laughs> you that. Don't so do that. Well, I thank do. you very much. So positive things can come from failure. And getting bullied, yeah, yeah by, by exactly. your father. <laughs> Isn't it nice to have a father who bullies you? Anyway, I'm just <laughs> grateful that he doesn't listen to the show because he, <laughs> he would not want to hear that. He would bully you more. So, so thanks, Daddy. Okay, so I will not wax poetically necessarily, but I will wax okay. on land art. And it used to be called environmental art for a while. And I think that the nomenclature is really important there because it is actually very environmentally disruptive. And so much of this work involves displacing huge amounts of earth 
and actually at the cost the to the detriment of the environment. So mm. we've shifted the terminology to land art, earth art, and I think that's a little bit more appropriate in the rhetoric. So you're right. It started in the late 60s as a response to pop art and continued through the 70s. And at this moment, a lot of people, performance artists included, are trying to break away from the insularity of the art world. And they are protesting the preciousness of the art object, of art that has financial value, art that can be commoditized, art that can be displayed. And so they're starting to see this power and potentiality of non-traditional materials, including dirt and rocks and stones, these gigantic monoliths. And they are almost collaborating with nature, not just domineering the art form, but actually doing this beautiful choreographed dance with the environment. So these artists like Robert Smithson, Michael Heiser, Agnes Denny's, uh, Walter DeMaria, they're going outside and using the world as their canvas, or similarly, they're bringing those natural materials into the gallery. So very disruptive, very antagonistic of the preciousness of pop. Right. And what's fascinating to me is really saying that, you know, art doesn't necessarily belong in a contained environment. Art is beyond that. Art goes outside into the world and really already exists. And we're doing nothing more than, like you said, poetically dancing with our own subject matter to recreate another narrative that is more interesting or allows the viewer to interact even when they don't know they're interacting. And I, in a not weird way, I was going to say in a weird way, but then I thought it's not really weird, but it is similar to graffiti, right? I mean, it has a similarity to what the object of graffiti is, which is always the co-option of public space and the interaction of public space. And to include the viewer, even if they are, uh, even if they are not intentionally part of the experience, they are. And so when I look at these earth artists, that's what they're really doing, right? They're they're bringing in us to the fray. I once saw that. Uh, I think I was in San Francisco or up north, and I saw what are those fences? The very famous one that I oh don't the know Cristo. The, yeah, the Cristo. Wasn't that up that north? That was in I mean, New York. No, there was one. The fences in Central Park. There was something up north. Oh, I'm I'm thinking the gates. The Crystal Gates are in New York. The fences probably in Northern Northern California. California. And I was like, I remember seeing it and being like, what the hell is that, right? You know, so there's that. (laughs) But then looking at what Andy Goldsworthy does, because I have his book, and Andy Goldsworthy, you know, he'll take rocks and he'll put them in these beautiful formations and he'll take ferns. And leaves, and next thing you know, you know he'll have a little bit of mud as the accent of color, like a Whistler painting, and you're like, oh my god, that's so beautiful! Like I don't, is it art? I think to myself, is this art? Is this not art? Yeah, of course it's art. He's, and what I love about somebody like Andy Goldsworthy, right, uh, as opposed to Christo Longo, Christo, Christo, thank you, <laughs> Christo and Longo, Jean Claude. What I love about Goldsworthy is that he really 
is not destructive with the environment. He really interacts with it. He really plays with it. You know he's just moving things around. He's not taking things and stomping it into the ground and excavating space and ruining the environment, you know, taking up roots, ruining, ruining little little chipmunks' habitats and birds' places. You know, like cause a, a lot of these earth artists or, or environmental artists do that. But Goldsworthy doesn't do that. He's very delicate. Everything seems like delicate. It feels like he's a chef at a Michelin star restaurant. Oh, I love that. Yeah. But an elegant chef. Yes. He is minimizing his carbon footprint. I did say min- Michelin restaurant. Oh, is, is that say, a minimalist experience? I wouldn't no, know. No, you said elegant because I, I, it's not, you know, this is not uh, Denny's. This is not This is not <laughs> a diner where he's right. flipping burgers and throwing fries everywhere. There's something very tactile, fragile, and quiet. It's quiet, yeah. It is. Right. And I love his work. I actually think that it's akin to Robert Long, who is an earth artist working in England. And Long, similarly, would imprint minimally on the environment. There's this one work of his where he would just walk in a straight line backwards and forwards until the impression of his body left an impression on the world. And then he photographed it. And eventually, probably not too far after the photograph was taken, nature reclaimed herself. And so he didn't create anything permanent. The only permanence, in fact, is in the photographic evidence. And he didn't displace anything irrevocably. It was just the weight of his body interacting with the surface of the world for that brief moment. And I think that that is just so quiet and dignified and harmonious And Goldsworthy is like that, too. And he also uses color Mm -hmm. in a really nice way. And all of Long's photographs that I've seen, at least, are black and white. Mm. But Goldsworthy will use the natural pigmentation of the earth as his palette. Yeah, it's beautiful. Oh, gorgeous. And he'll sometimes um, pick apart leaves and then compose them and then photograph the aftermath, but what is the object that could be sold at auction? It really is just a record, a visual trace of something that is private. And that's my question to you now, because I am naive about this subject matter, and I am not afraid to say it, by the way. And we're, and as uh, as we are the hosts of the show, that doesn't mean that we are, ex- that we are experts on any category in particular, any movement, any style in particular, we just want to discover it as much as you guys want to listen about it. Sometimes we are experts in the, in the field. Sometimes we're talking about stuff that I know so much about or Lizzie has, has talked about and taught about for many years. But other times, you know, we just, we're discovering this along with you guys. And one thing I've always thought about is how do you, commodify that how do you make money on this how how is Andy Goldsworthy besides his books like in a gallery setting and perhaps some of these artists do interchange they go inside the container of a gallery they go outside into the existential realm uh, of the world and be and become their real clandestine earth art selves but how are these people making money? Are they getting grants? Are they are they are there private weird billionaire dudes who are like, yeah, I want you to make this crazy <laughs> thing on my eighty thousand square foot lawn? And they're like, okay, how is this monetized? 
I would say it's probably monetized in a two-pronged approach. One would be the sale of these photographs, especially if you do a limited run or a limited edition, then you could get a lot of money based on those. But I think more to the point, people will have a sponsorship from a foundation. The Dia Arts Foundation, for instance, they are very celebratory of this type of work, and they'll pay artists like Walter DeMaria to do this immersive installation of his earth work, The Energies. And we talked about this in our New York episode, but he has this one space in Soho, and it's called The Earth Room, and the whole thing is founded and continues to be run by the Dia Art Foundation. And you expect to see art on the walls or on some kind of pedestal when you walk in the gallery, and instead you're confronted with 3,600 square feet of dirt. I think it's 22 inches high. I mean, the whole thing is just dirt, a natural material that is outsourced from the environment and placed in a gallery context, and you can't walk around. So I won't belabor this because we've already talked about that in the New York episode, but to go back to your question, the Dia Arts Foundation pays for it. And I believe they also funded his lightning installation that's outdoors. So that is... What, as, what do you mean the lightning installation that's I can't, outdoors? <laughs> right, right. An, an extillation? Right. There's a... One of his pieces mm-hmm. is his most famous piece. It's also funded by Dia, but it's outside. It's not in a gallery context. So okay. sometimes these earth artists will imprint themselves in the world and it becomes almost a pilgrimage to go see. And then sometimes they bring the natural materials and environment in a gallery or museum context. Another one would be Dia Beacon, which is in Beacon, New York. And there's a lot of earth art there. Yeah, so, it's, a, it's, a, it's a crazy field. It right? is. Like you don't just go like <laughs> you're in school going, so I'd like to major in earth art. Like, I feel like it, it, it can't happen that way. It has to be, you have to be, not to quote Jack London, but you, it's like a call to the wild, right? You know what I mean? Where you <laughs> nice. really have to be, you have to feel the pull. And you have to feel like you're, you need to walk the earth. You need to, uh, and I, I understand that feeling. You know, it's like when you farm or when you when you plant stuff, there's nothing more satiating and connecting than to put your feet on the earth, right? There's 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 a thing called grounding. Oh my and, god, I have a it, personal anecdote to share about okay. grounding. So my <laughs> uncle is such a hippie. He vehemently believes in grounding. And so he has a blanket, this comforter that has a little cord attached to it. And every night he physically grounds that cord into the earth so that the comforter that covers his body is somehow connected to the ground. Okay. So he plugs so let, in. Let's take a time out here. I have the same thing. <laughs> no, you don't. Yeah, it's called the grounding pad. And Stop I've had it. <laughs> oh my God. I mean you talk about he's being am I a hippie? I'm not a hippie. But no, I have the same thing, but you don't you plug it into the wall. Because what the idea is, is that it it grounds you and there's all of these EMFs and all these crazy... I know it's crazy, but he plugs it into... He puts it into the ground. I think so. Maybe I, I just misunderstood so. yeah, all these years. I think he misunderstood it. I think that he oh, plugs it in. That's a lot less interesting. Yeah. And it kind of like... <laughs> yeah, and it grounds you. But, you know, I mean, look, there's grounding pads, grounding beds, grounding blankets, grounding comforters, grounding this, that, and the other thing. I don't know what a scam or not a scam it is. 
but I do know that there's a lot of stuff that, and our body does have a magnetic field. And when you put your feet, let's get it real simple, guys. When you put your feet in the earth, you are grounded. We need to do that as human beings. We have our own chemical magnetic energy that we are just completely radiated with all kinds of stuff all the time. 5G, 6G, 7G, all kinds of crazy EMFs, microwaves, whatever. But we once we get that, that foot in the ground, it's like when you go to the beach and you go, oh, I feel so good. Your body's in the ocean. Your body's in the sand. There's something different about that. You come back and you're rejuvenated. Well, why is that? Because you're grounded. So going back full circle to the earth art, these people, that's what they're doing. You know, much like, much like farmers or people that are working uh, with land and soil, there's something that we need about that. It's just not the B12 that we need, right, From, that we don't get anymore, or the, uh, the MSM that they say that we need because we don't have it in our body because we used to get it from rainwater because we're not in the rain anymore. People look at the rain. They're like, oh, my God, it's raining. I got to stay inside or I got to get a I got to get an umbrella. I got to get a hat. It's raining. I'm going to die. Oh, no. What are you like? What are you, the Wicked Witch of the West and the Wizard of Oz? It's like, What's wrong with you? Get in the rain. Get in the rain. So painting in my studio, when I look at Earth artists, specifically Andy Goldsworthy, because I think to me he's like top-notch. Like He's just so beautiful. When I look at that, it, it makes me feel like, well, what as an artist, I want to do that. I want to – I don't know what I would do. I'm, I'm so urban. I would probably take homeless shit, you know, and put that around with like – all kinds of weird shit because I'm, you know, where I'm from up in New York, I would do some really crazy stuff like with, I don't even know, you know, but I really feel like it's really important to, to get in there. I do too. And I think that it also is distinctly American. I know that I mentioned Robert Long being a British earth artist, but Americans have such a distinctive, harmonious, majestic relationship to land that I am not surprised that this working with the land really came from America and has been guided by American thinkers. We talked about the Hudson River School and how those artists painted the expansive American West and how ideologically that's all about manifest destiny and this God-given right, this pursuit of exploration, discovery, and newness. And so that was a painted representation of those thoughts, of the character traits of American values. And I think that these land artists are taking that to another level by actually going in the land and creating their their visions in, uh, in situ. I mean, but... And also... Furthermore, conclusively, hitherto, subsequently. <laughs> but for, like, realistically, come on, this has been going on since the beginning of time. Stonehenge, Easter Island, hieroglyphics in caves, the cave paintings of Lascaux, France. Everything has always been interactive, right? I mean, it, it back when we were uh, not calling ourselves artists, when we were just living in tribes, they were interacting with nature all the time. And oftentimes, it had a interesting, profound practicality to it. There was a pragmatic reason that there was these deities being constructed from nature. And, and 
things that were built that were art. I mean, look at the look at the pyramids, right? Isn't that earth art? Yeah, totally. But I mean, and capital- tombs and yes, places of worship. Absolutely. I mean, they, they, so and they Stonehenge. have multi-dimensional purposes that were really pragmatic and important and symbolic and spiritual and, and spiritual. Yeah. Sure. No, I agree with all of that, but I think the difference would be the lowercase land art or the lowercase interaction with the land and then what the uppercase. Well, this is an intentional grouping of artists who are consciously making art in the land. And that okay. hasn't been happening forever. That I think was a reaction against all of the art market fetishization of pop. And so that came in this country at a particular time for a particular reason. And so that seems time and space specific. But sure, people have been communing and collaborating with nature forever. We all write our name in the sand at the beach, right? You know oh, what I mean? Like, yes, that's, but, that's but, great. And we all build sandcastles at the beach. We, it's true. Like, And kids have a natural affinity to do that, to play with nature, to be... Because we are nature. And I think the idea that I like, the basic fundamental ideology is that we don't, we're not going to play in this container sandbox. We're going to play in the world. I don't need to do an installation here. I don't need to do a painting and hang it on the wall when my studio is outside and it's way more vast and it's it's just way bigger than anything you could even conceive of in a gallery space. I think that is a lot of what I feel is the pull to create like that. And also you have this limitless palette Because as you say, there is just such a vast resource when you're working outside, and that lends itself to this issue of scale in land art. Something that is monumental in size is totally descaled in the photographs because we're not there, and so we can't interact with it from our corporeal selves. It's distance in the photography. Now, do you think that anybody is doing this, and can you do earth art in urban environments? Like, is that even a thing? Should I make it my thing? I mean, like right now, did I just (laughs) discover a new genre? I mean, isn't that true? Like people are doing it in nature and even with fences, you know, in, in, in oceans, you see all of that. What is that one? Just a a side note. What is that? Spiral Jetty. Spiral Jetty. Who did that? Robert Smithson. Yeah. And then when it, and then when it dried up, it came back 30 years later or Exactly. And so I love that, the ephemerality piece. Right. And to go back to what you said earlier, which I think was a really sagacious point, is that graffiti is almost like the urban example of, of um, land art because of its impermanence. And I think that's a huge mm. piece because the land art is completely temporary. And yeah. even with something like Spiral Jetty, which is probably the most iconic example of land art, although maybe it's been replaced or supplanted by the LACMA piece, the um, levitated mass. Oh, the one that we did our photo shoot under? Yeah, 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 exactly. (laughs) Those were such fun photos. Is that land art? Yeah, that's a gigantic monolith that's been displaced. But it feels weird because it's land, it's a gigantic monolith around cement and a tunnel. It doesn't feel like land art. It is land art, though. It's Michael okay. Heiser who identifies as a land artist, which I think is Just because is you identify important. as a land artist doesn't mean that it, that was land art. It's a piece of it. It was a rock. <laughs> it was a rock in a cement 
format that was all architecturally designed around it. Yeah, but land art is not just going out into nature. It's also bringing nature into an urban setting, which is LACMA. That makes and sense. So, yeah, and this so was I outside of LACMA. Whatever. It's another iteration hey, th- of see, the same theme. It, we're all learning together. We're, this is a learning tree. <laughs> this is a discovery, but I think that's a great question. What does this kind of energy look like in a concrete urban context? And I would right. say street art and graffiti. Yeah. And I really wanted to bring up this one example of earth art that is underutilized in scholarship. Very people, very few people talk about it. And I think this speaks to your question of the collision of nature and culture. And it was done in the early 80s, I think 1982, which is important to note if you look up the photographs, which I hope you guys listening will. And it's by a female earth artist, pretty rare to have women in the space. And her name is Agnes Dennys. And she took a two-acre plot in Manhattan, lower Manhattan. Now it's Battery Park City. And at the time, it was... I do know this. Do you? Oh, my God, I'm obsessed with it. The wheat field? Yeah. Yeah, of course. Well, what'd you say? What year was that? 82. I was there. (gasps) Yeah, I was there. That's why I know that. That was Earth Art? I mean, I wasn't even born. I was like, what the hell is this wheat field doing (laughs) in New York? That's so funny. Okay, well, we're going to get back to... (laughs) And I just said something really sassy. I said, well, I wasn't even born yet. I just wanted to make sure you heard that. I mean, I look so young that I know you're confused (laughs) oftentimes, so that's probably the disconnect. That's true. You look great. So at the time, that amount of land was estimated to be worth $4.5 billion. And so Agnes Denny's took the two-acre plot and planted a wheat field. And for four months, she tended to this field. Mm -hmm. And the photographs are just remarkable. There's one that's really poignant now because you can see the Twin Towers in the background. This is down by Wall Street, by the way, guys. Yeah, it's Battery Park City. Mm -hmm. Isn't that what it is? So it's just this phenomenal juxtaposition of nature and culture. And her intent in the project was to reveal our misplaced values. And really what's important is sustaining yourself bodily, is feeding yourself, this nourishment, this Mm -hmm. connection to the land. And in a city like Manhattan that we so revere, all of that just seems to go away. Mm -hmm. Sure, we have Central Park, but Mm -hmm. it's a contained, bound natural space. And she's saying this vast, limitless nature of a wheat field that maybe you see in Kansas, that is really our American identity, and that is what we should be investing our time and our money in. And then after the tenure of the installation, she sheathed all the wheat, and I think there were, it was like a 1,000 pounds of wheat, and then all of that wheat traveled in this moving exhibition. And it's a really beautiful project. I am so envious that you saw it, and I'm dying to know what you remember. No, I don't remember. I was a kid, and I don't remember... Anything other than what the hell is that wheat field doing in New York? It was like very, you know, I'm from the city. Everything is like a concrete jungle. So you don't, you remember those moments when you're walking down and you're like, what's going on, man? I'm like, I don't know. There's some wheat growing here. And like, why? I don't know. That's weird. Are they weeds? You know, one, probably one of those. <laughs> like, I, I was a, you know, New York City hick, I like to say, and obviously a city slicker and a street urchin. So, to me, it wasn't like I was experiencing the profound undertaking and idea and commitment that this land artist had taken upon herself as uh, to make a statement. You know, 
it, it wasn't like I was so I was such a simpleton where I wouldn't have gotten it, but I didn't nobody told me. I just remember the visual of being there because in 82, you know, you're talking about like I'm a freshman, I'm sorry, I'm a yeah, freshman or sophomore in high school. So I'm just like, whoa, that's, you know, is that what, what I was? Yeah, I was. Like some, something around there. So it was just one of those things that I'll never forget. It was crazy. It was beautiful. Uh, they did something similar down here in L.A. that I used to go to all the time. It's called the Cornfields. You remember that? I don't. And it was a little bit of an earth art movement down here. And they made, they transformed this giant piece of real estate by the 110 freeway uh, near Chinatown into a giant cornfield. And it was really cool. And we used to go down there and party and we'd walk around and we'd hike and it became a, a little bit of a, just a, a cool place to to be in. And you would walk around at night and the stalks were huge and you just felt like, wow, I'm, I'm deep in it. And then eventually now that's under development by some giant real real estate company. But it was interesting to that that was interactive. My New York experience wasn't interactive. It was just I remember how shocking it was, and, and that was definitely indelibly marked on my childhood, one of my childhood memories. Well, that's fantastic. And I think something that seems true about all of these earth art projects and certainly your experiences with them and also mine is humility. Either you feel humbled by nature or you celebrate the humility of these materials. Because wheat, for instance, is very cheap. It is ubiquitous around the Midwest. And yet that was what overtook this $4.5 billion piece of land. Yeah. And, and I'm so sure it's not, I'm sure it's a giant real estate <laughs> explosion right now. I mean, they probably built everything. Yeah, I'd I'm li- sure. I'd like to know what it is now. <laughs> but I'm sure it's a Starbucks. Oh, God, that's depressing. But that, to me, is one of the the really elegant features of this art, is the humility, is the appreciation of something that otherwise we overlook. Or in the more pernicious stance, it's something that we try to take away and try to, to construct a power dynamic over. And there's this age-old battle man versus nature. And I think that land art really contributes to that conversation. Is it man taking over nature? Is it man celebrating nature as maybe underneath it a little bit within the power spectrum? Or is it man harmoniously intertwining himself with nature? Right. And by the way, when Lizzie says man, she le- she means man and woman. Oh, yeah. I, I only not, mean woman. <laughs> she's she's not being misogynistic intentionally, everybody. I'm sorry. I'm a feminist. <laughs> I have to point that out. But anyway, I have look, never this loved is, you more. <laughs> this is this is something that you thought that maybe I wouldn't like this, didn't you? You had no idea that I was going to be so positive about this. No, we've talked about Goldsworthy before. Okay. I knew that you were, right, you I were a fan. I just want to make sure because you know how you and I could go at each other's, get at each other. And attack each other in loving ways, of course. Violently. But, yeah. <laughs> but my point is that I, I think you might be a little surprised. Just a little bit. You always surprise me. Thank you. Okay, guys. Well, listen. Leave us a comment. Leave us a review. Don't give us anything less than five stars. And if you do, just keep it to yourself. Come on. Give me a break. Or give us whatever. And enjoy. See you next time. Peace. <laughs>